Hello everybody and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian. My name is Justin. And we have a fantastic episode ahead for you. Uh, spring break episode. Happy spring break everyone. Happy spring break. You all made it through midterms. Maybe. Probably not because midterms never actually end. Um, but at least you made it through the week before midterm, uh, before spring break. And we're happy that you chose Fly on the Wall to start off your spring break. Um, we have a fantastic guest on the pod this week, um, Clint Smith. He was a guest this past week um, at fellow Eugene um, Scott's discussion group. Um, so if you stopped by there, you heard from him. Um, but he talks to us about um, his incredible journey from being a teacher in Prince George's County, Maryland, real close by to D.C., um, to being a sort of thought leader, um, think piece writer, and also poet um, that he is today. And uh, a bit more about his um, really wide influence on social media, Twitter especially as well. Yeah. Um, speaking of Twitter, uh, you should follow us on social media you at should. Fly on the Wall Pod on pretty much everything. Um, as well, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast.gmail.com. Um, at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Briefly forgot how emails work. <laughs> um, definitely check us out. Let us know what you're into. Let us know what you're not into. Um, don't let us know if you hate us. That would be kind of mean of you, to be completely honest. <laughs> All right. Let's jump into our segments for the week. Um, before we get started, let's spin that segment wheel. I love the very end of that. It's so right? exciting. It's like the segment wheel is excited that it's finally picked something. Uh, first up this week, we have a grind our gears and the subject of this grind our gears is tweet storms. Christian, you want to start us off? Okay, so this is topical because if you follow Clint Smith on Twitter, um, at Clint Smith III, um, he does a lot of tweet storms, and tweet storms have really been changed. Do you consider tweet storms and tweet threads the same? Yes. Okay. Um, Just want to get that out there. Yes. Um, tweet storms, tweet threads, I, it's all the same thing. If you are replying to Multiple yourself... T- okay, fair, yeah, fair. Just want to get the definition clarified. <laughs> um, essentially, the game has been changed with these 240 characters. <laughs> Because instead of having to read, like, 45 tweets in a tweet storm, I now only have to read 20, which really isn't that bad. It's, like, essentially reading, like, a, sh- like a short essay. Um, and what really grinds my gears about them is that I feel like people don't know when to end them. Like, I feel like there are, like, the most most tweet storms that go past, like, 10 don't need to go past 10. Mm. Um, and especially with 240 characters, like, my issue here is, like, you could have absolutely made the ex- these exact same points in less tweets and if it takes you more tweets than that there's a thing called a newspaper and that's where you really should just be putting your thoughts at that point like if you have enough points and evidence to make um to finally get to a thesis that's called a paper or an essay and that's where you should really be putting this information very strong feelings from christian mason on tweet storms Um, thoughts yeah what grinds my gears is um see i'm just never sure if like i i'm allowed to tweet storm you know what I mean? Like, I'm being serious, though. If I see, like, someone like Clint Smith, like, like does a, a tweet storm or a tweet there, I'm like, oh, okay, like, like Clint Smith's got thoughts. Like, I want to read this. This guy's cool. No like, do I have thoughts. to... That's the thing. Do I have to, like, hit a certain threshold of, like, popularity or influence, like, for me to do a tweet storm? Because I feel like, like, just anyone who throws out random tweet storms, like, it's... You, you gotta earn the tweet storm. That's fair. But also, at the same time, like, sometimes I have strong opinions about things that can't be made in one tweet. Yeah, that's fair. I just always have a, a like an internal tension of like, am I allowed to tweet storm on this? That's fair, and I think for us it's different because it's like if we're tweet storming more than like three times, no one cares. No, that's the thing. Not at all. 
Uh, Justin, let's roll that second wheel again. Let's roll that second wheel again. Ah, the anticipation. Here it is. Alright, what do we got next on the segment wheel? We have Did You See That? Christian, do you have a Did You See That for the week? I do have a Did You See That. So for anyone that knows me, um, knows that I love long-form articles. Um, like, you know, over 10,000 words easily. I, I just, like, I love them. I love consuming them. Um, they're, like, something I look forward to in my days. Um, and I just saw one in The Atlantic um, that I think is absolutely fantastic. It's called The Plot Against America. Um, and just to read you the subheadline. Decades before he ran the Trump campaign, Paul Manafort's pursuit of foreign cash and shady deals laid the groundwork for the corruption of Washington. And it's essentially this, you know, like five part act um, all about Paul Manafort's life. And it's a really, really interesting historical analysis on essentially how he went from just, you know, a guy to a guy who ended up running a major presidential campaign. Um, And it's really, really good. And for a lot of people who have very serious questions about who Paul Manafort really was, because he really is a guy who kind of just jumped onto the scene in 2015. Um, this paints a really good picture of who he was before then. Um, and is very, very, very well done. Awesome. We'll definitely check that out. Um, we'll do our best to get that uh, link tweeted out after the episode drops as well. Um, quick update on political picks. Um, so hopefully you're staying up to date on that. Um, quick update. I'm losing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quick update. We're both losing. Um we're not doing fantastic. That's all right. We're going to pull through this week. Um, our political picks question for Clint um, was, which podcast would you recommend to our listeners besides Fly and Law, obviously? Duh. Yeah, duh. Um, I picked Pod Save the People because he's a frequent co-host on that. Christian, what'd you say? Um, I said S-Town, um, and I, I would like to explain this. Number one, I would have picked Pod Save the People as well because I think it's a cop-out to pick the podcast that he is on. Obviously. Um, Sorry, I got there first. And thought that we were not allowed to pick other ones, which people on our team disagree with and I'm a little angry about. Um, but S-Town is really good. Um, so S-Town is essentially this like story about this guy in like rural America. Um, and it's, it's really, really fantastic. Um, highly recommend it. And it's just like very, very famous. So it was like my, my guess of like, if you had to pick a famous podcast to recommend. Okay. We'll see what Clint has to say and we'll update you on how the team did on social media this week. Yep. So let's jump right into the, um, let's jump right into the episode. Uh, let's welcome Clint. Clint Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you all for having me. We We are excited to have you on Fly on the Wall this week. We are very excited for this. Uh, You know, we've we've had some really interesting people with very different experiences on this podcast, um, and we are excited to add your voice to this. I appreciate it, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It's always good to to be back at Georgetown. I really love the campus. Great to hear. Um, So we want to get started, um, really where you got started, back in your early life, um, and want to understand how... Your experiences then led you to a life of academia. Did you always know you wanted to kind of be in the space you are today? Um, or was it something along the way that sort of inspired that job? Yeah. Uh, so growing up, all I wanted to do was be a professional soccer player. Um, so I played <laughs> soccer from age 5 to 21. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, played throughout middle school, high school, college. Right. Um, and really until I was probably 17 years old, I was like... It is very clear to me that I'm going to be a professional soccer player. I'm going to play in Europe, play for Arsenal, marry a model, be a millionaire. It's going to be great. Uh, things uh, did not work out that way. Um, 
I think part of what happens is, you know, I grew up, I'm from New Orleans. I grew up in Louisiana and, uh, and I was always like really, really good. I was all, all city, all state. Um, and then you grow up and I went off to college and, and you quickly realize that, uh, Louisiana is not a hotbed of soccer town <laughs> against which to measure your skills. Um, and so it was kind of a big fish in a small pond and, and then got to college and actually, uh, had a really hard time at the beginning. Didn't play a lot. Um, and, and it was kind of this sort of identity crisis where the thing that had been the sort of definitive fixture of my identity and how I navigated the world was something that I was no longer good at and thus no longer sort of defined by. Um, like, what does it mean to have only thought of yourself really as a soccer player um, and as a student, but largely as a means to like stay on the soccer field, right? Because my parents were like, you can only keep playing if you do well in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's interesting, even my notions of like learning were very much tied to um, the reward of like being able to do this other thing that I wanted to do. And so then, you know, I got to Davidson, which is a small school, but had a, uh, you know, has a history of having a good soccer program, Division One. Um, and we were playing, you know, Duke and UVA and UCLA and Stanford and all these folks who would go on to play in the MLS and some even in Europe. Uh, and, and I just wasn't playing. And so I had this existential crisis where I was like, who am I? What is this? I don't understand. Uh, if I'm not a soccer player, I don't know who I am. And, and I think in many ways, the sort of beginning stages of college were me trying to sort of explore and figure out uh, who I was beyond the soccer field or how my, uh, how I was going to sort of cultivate a sense of self that didn't, wasn't related to, to a ball. And, and I feel very grateful to have gone to, I got recruited by some, some other bigger schools where I most certainly wouldn't have gotten any playing time. Um, but I feel grateful that I ended up in a school that was like a small liberal arts school, you know, 1600 students when I was there, it's 2000 now. Um, and it very much felt like a summer camp, right? I mean, like Steph Curry was my classmate. <laughs> we were, it's, it sounds wild to people now, but you know, we would like eating chicken parm in the cafeteria <laughs> and then he became the sort of face of college basketball and obviously then the face of the NBA and, and he's right. a great guy yeah it's uh but that was Davidson you know right. it was it was just a tiny place everybody knew each other he was out there playing beer pong like everybody else. <laughs> uh, and uh uh, obviously, when he was over 21 for his of face, course. Oh, clearly, yeah, absolutely. clearly <laughs> had to wait. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it really gave me the time and space to sort of figure out who I was. And, and so I wrote, I was the editor of the opinion section of the newspaper, um, joined the fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. Um, I was really involved in Big Brothers Big Sisters. Um, I started a poetry group, uh, actually, called Free Word. And so I, in the summer of 2008, I had an internship in New York City and... I went to a spoken word poetry venue and which is, I watched some YouTube videos and stuff, but I had never um, seen it in person. And this woman got on stage and did a poem about having cerebral palsy. And in three minutes, the way I thought about an entire demographic of people sort of completely changed. And, and I, I never experienced art that, so this really moved me in that way. And I left that night being like, I don't know what this is, but I want to do it. And so I went back to Davidson and being a small school, it's kind of a place where like, if you want to start a group mm-hmm. to, you know, juggle or do whatever you can, um, <laughs> And so I started this group and it was this sort of ragtag group of, of like 12 of us. And we were like, we're going to be performance poets. And, and we got together every, um, every Sunday night in the sort of attic of the main academic building. And, uh, and we practiced and we shared and we wrote and we workshopped. And that was my first looking back on it. That's my sort of first experience as a teacher, even though I didn't necessarily define it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as a writer in, in a way that like took, began to take it seriously and, 
uh, the poems were very, very bad uh, <laughs> for a very, for a very long time. Um, and they, did you know they were bad, or did you think? No, they were when bad? I was writing them, I thought they were amazing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because like you know, you go and a part of it is I'm very grateful. I have very supportive friends sure, who like right. you know, you go and you, sh- I, you know, I show up to you know to my dorm room and all my friends are, like playing FIFA and Madden. I was like, guys. I'm a poet now. <laughs> and they're just like, they look at it like, what? Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, your friends come through and they come to the union for like the open mic night and they're like snapping there and, and it makes you think you're good, but you're not. But, but it was, but I appreciated it because it cultivated a confidence that like pushed me to keep writing. And so all that's to say that I, I became really invested in, in writing and teaching in a way that I, I had never anticipated. Um, and then I lived in South Africa for a year doing public health work after I graduated in 2010, um, doing eight, around HIV AIDS and tuberculosis. Uh, and actually Johannesburg had a really amazing performing arts scene and writing scene. So I, I got really involved there. And then when I came back to DC where I taught, uh, high school English, mm-hmm. um, I got really involved in the slam poetry scene here and, and continue. And I think the slam poetry scene in DC is a place that really helped me develop my politics, my writing, uh, my sense of self, some of my closest friends are from there. Um, and and part of, so that being in that space in conjunction with being a, a teacher in Prince George's County, Maryland, um, had me thinking a lot about, you know, and this was also sort of in the midst of a moment, Trayvon Martin had just happened. And so I think that we were collectively as a country in the sort of very nascent stages of what would become the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that we were, uh, that writers and journalists and scholars and folks were we're digging into the sort of larger socio-political and socio-historical uh, sets of factors that shape the sort of contemporary landscape of inequality, and and I was becoming increasingly interested in that, and I kind of wanted wanted to be a part of that, and um, so I spent a few years in the classroom, and then um, applied to one PhD program and got in, and uh, and here we are. That was. I gave you like a whole life journey. Yeah, right. That was that was quite a journey. <laughs> professional soccer player at you know twenty, and then not a professional soccer player into teaching. Yeah. Um. So talk to us a little bit about your experiences as a teacher. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of I feel like what I when I talk to teachers, a lot of what I feel like is they're learning just as much mm-hmm. as um they're teaching. Mm-hmm. Um. So what did you? What kind of experiences did you take away as a teacher, and how did that kind of lead you into having a more public role in society? Yeah, you know, so I taught at a school in Prince George's County, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, it was ninety-seven percent black and brown students, um, but but it's interesting because that could lead you to think that it was a sort of homogenous population of folks. But um, but it was really d- diverse. Um, you had students who who even you know even among the black students there was a sort of plurality of experiences, a plurality of nationalities. You had a lot of first-gen students whose parents were West African. Prince George's County, where I was, has a big um, refugee resettlement program. And so you had a lot of folks from the Middle East. You had a lot of folks from East Africa. Um, you had a lot, a lot of folks who were uh, here via TPS from El Salvador, a lot of undocumented folks. Um, and it's interesting. I think I began to think about immigration in a fundamentally different way after I was teaching there because, you know, immigration wasn't something that was ever at the forefront of my consciousness. But, uh, you know, when you're sitting there and you are introduced to um, and working with and reading the stories of, of these young people who who every day live in the like very real perpetual threat of uh, and fear of going home and their parents or their family members not being there anymore um, that the ice might have come while they were at school and that they were deported is uh, makes you think about it in a fundamentally different way and also makes you realize that these people are are like escaping 
really violent and horrific and deeply impoverished circumstances of which cannot be disentangled from things that like the United States has done. Right. And so I think it's interesting, you know, obviously we're in the midst of this sort of contemporary immigration debate and, and people are like, Oh, well, like we're a nation of laws and, you know, people just can't come here. And, and I think that reasonable people can disagree about the nature of borders. But I think that what we have to do is recognize that, you know, if you look at Haiti or you look at Honduras or you look at El Salvador, the very real material conditions of those countries as we understand them today cannot be divorced from U.S. intervention that has happened in those countries uh, over the course of like decades and decades and generations and generations. And so um, I think that I started to think a lot about all of those different things in like a really different way when I was teaching um, and just and, and that sort of animated a lot of my, my pedagogy. I became really interested in critical pedagogy and Paulo Freire and pedagogy of the oppressed and the idea of education as a tool of liberation and critical consciousness. Um, and also uh, just sort of broaden my understanding that like we can't really understand and think about education without also thinking about the sort of, again, the larger social and political factors that that are deeply tied to it, right? So you can't have a conversation about education without also thinking about mass incarceration, food insecurity, um, you know, uh, a history of housing segregation, uh, all of these different things that obviously impact our students' lives every single day. Uh, and I just wanted to learn and understand more about that. And, and so being a teacher um, was largely the catalyst for um, so much of what, I think being a teacher in a moment of increased uh, racial politicization. Um, and then also, um, I was a senior in high school when Hurricane Katrina happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that was also the sort of beginning of my own uh, politicizing process where I, I was sitting here kind of like, I can't imagine that what is happening to my city would be happening if um, this were um, Bridgeport, Connecticut, mm -hmm. you know, and uh and I began to think differently, uh, maybe not think differently. I think my my understanding of race and racism and inequality began to evolve, um, beginning with that moment, and and certainly was um, was almost exacerbated and, and developed and evolved really quickly when I was teaching, and that led me to just kind of want to spend more time thinking about these things, and 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 in many ways, what would come to be sort of thinking about them out loud which is kind of the way I think about what I do now is just, I think I do a lot of thinking in public. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Tweet of the Week comes to us from Robert McGuire on Twitter. This is, mm, this is probably our best Tweet of the Week we've ever had on this podcast. Uh, the Utah House of Representatives made a rap video. Yes, you heard that correctly. A rap video about how a bill becomes law and somehow it's worse than you would expect. So full disclosure, I've not seen this video because it came out like an hour before we um, recorded this intro, um, or this segment, excuse me. But I've heard, it picked up quite a bit of traction on social media and it's not getting rave reviews. Here's my thing, it's, okay, the whole how a bill became a law has already been done. It's right, been done on like Schoolhouse Rock covered that. Yeah, Schoolhouse Rock has already done it. What, like, you're you, just, yeah, I don't understand why they felt the need there. Yeah, it's, it's a mistake on their end. Utah, you guys messed up. That being okay. said, check out the video. It's pretty funny. Um, we do want to talk about that thinking in public, as you say. 
Um, because the reality is your voice is a very powerful and, and widely known one um, across a lot of different mediums to really influence um, sort of broader social discussion on a lot of the topics you just mentioned. Um, so like we we're saying, you use a wide variety of mediums, um, like the more traditional, um, like essays and articles and things like that, places like the New Yorker. Um, but you also really draw on the arts to get your message across through poems and slam poetry like you were talking about during your time in college. Uh, how do the arts offer you a sort of different and unique way to tell your truth? Yeah, I think that for me, poetry allows, um, and different types of art, I think, allow for a different sort of access point to enter conversations that uh, that are unique to 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 others. Uh, I think you know when I when I do a poem, I think it allows someone to, I think poems at their best and art at their best allow for a sort of radical empathy, right? They allow for someone to sort of step outside of themselves and imagine their, their lives and their ideas being shaped by, you know, walking in the sort of proverbial footsteps of someone else. Um, and, and I think that that's what the best novels do. I think that's what the best paintings do. I think that's what the best uh, pieces of theater do. And, and I think at, at its best, I think that's what poetry and performance poetry does. Um, and I, I found myself again sort of moved in, in a way that I hadn't experienced by this poem that I saw in 2008. Um, and, and always just felt like it when that poetry could be a means of sort of supplementing other mediums. Like I'm, I'm very, I think, I, I think of the scholars and the thinkers and the writers and the, um, Folks that I most looked up look up to sort of throughout history, uh, you think of like a, a W. E. B. Du Bois, right? Like who is he? A historian? Is he a sociologist? Mm-hmm. Is he a novelist? Is he a poet? Is he an activist? Is he a you know like he he occupied so many different mediums, so many different genres, so many different spaces, and sort of rejected um, the the idea of any type of intellectual compartmentalization. And mm-hmm. and I think that there are, you know. Especially in the sort of African American studies tradition, there's so many um, scholars who are and, and people who are thinking about and expressing their ideas and conveying their message in, in a in such a variety of ways and recognizing this sort of specific utility. Like there's something that I might be able to say uh, in a tweet that maybe doesn't necessitate an entire essay, right? Um, or there's some. I think there's something about the brevity mm-hmm. um, of that medium that. That is in and of itself, you know, I, I think that sometimes people can think about Twitter and be like, oh, well, it's uh, it kind of think it, think of it as a throwaway. Like it's just a place for like bad takes and like cat memes, but, um, <laughs> but it is, but like, I look, I, I think of it as a sort of ever evolving encyclopedia. Like I have access to ideas and thinkers and people and that I never would have, I don't, I, you know, wouldn't have had more than five years ago or however long, um, or I guess a decade ago when, when Twitter wasn't, it didn't exist. And, and so, you know, with every evolving era, there are different ways to convey your message, right? Like, um, Thomas Paine, like maybe back in the day, he would have been using Twitter instead of pamphlets, right? Like, I think there are different ways that people recognize that, um, you are able to engage and communicate. And I think poems and arts or a tweet or a peer review journal or an essay or a, short story or whatever it is, um, are all just extensions of the same sort of like political and intellectual, um, commitments. Do you think you, do you think you offer any sort of different voice 
in you know you know a tweet versus a long form article, or is it really just a different ways to have these conversations? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that in in many ways, obviously, the thinking of all of them is connected. So I, it, right. it's fascinating. So I wrote a piece uh, a couple months ago for the Paris Review that that was interesting because I think it was emblematic of the the different ways that my thought process operates. So I visited the National Museum of African-American History and Culture with my grandfather and was just kind of reflecting on what it meant to visit a museum with someone who had who was like present and alive during so many of the things that this museum was documenting and specifically so much of the violence that it was documenting. Um, and so I, I, I had like a short thread about it, like three or four tweets where I was just kind of thinking, like thinking through that idea. And then I sat down and I started to write a poem based on the tweets. And then I wrote the poem. And then I was like, oh, there's something else here. And then I wrote an essay based on the poem. <laughs> um, and in many ways, that's kind of how my mind works, right? Like, I think there's certainly, there are things that I'll, I'll tweet that then I kind of go back to and say, this is something that should be unpacked more. Um, or there are things that I'm like, well, I, I, maybe I should write like an essay or an op-ed about this. That I realize, like, I actually don't, it doesn't. It doesn't need a full thousand words or even 800 words like this is, you know, and now that the character limit is longer, you can, you know, five tweets and it's like four or five hundred words already. Um, and and so I I think both that they build build off of one another um, and that, you know, obviously uh, a poem that I, that I read in front of a group of people is, is unique to uh, a tweet. But but again, I think that they're all sort of like this this Venn diagram of sorts, right? Where they're all kind of connected in, in different ways and um, sometimes exist um, on their own and sometimes exist in conjunction with other things. Um, so let's talk about the Twitter a little bit because you mentioned that and you have quite a sizable presence on Twitter, um, which is impressive. Um, and post on Twitter, obviously, for a lot of the big ideas and thoughts that mm-hmm. you're talking about. Um, what do you think specifically for Twitter the power is of those short messages you can put out there um, while still being sort of introspective and reflective and encouraging those conversations and not just like kind of one shot yeah. anger messages back yeah. and forth like you see so frequently. Yeah, Twitter's a wild place, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the wild west. It, is, it really is the wild west. You just gotta sometimes, you know, I'll pick up my phone and then I'm like, oh Lord, not right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting, right? I think my platform, yeah, obviously has grown um, over the last few years and, uh, I think part of the first thing is that it it necessitates um, you being a lot more thoughtful about what you write. I think there are a lot of things that I think that I shouldn't post or, you know, I think my, my sort of mantra is, is some things are better for the group chat than they are for the time. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there are like things that you say in the group chat with the homies that are, uh, that where you can share sort of your takes on things that that the nature of the platform of Twitter can be different. I think it, it it is getting, you know, some people think it's getting better or worse. But I, I'd like to think that it is getting better um, with regard to how much nuance you can convey. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, things can be decontextualized. Things can be, um, people can operate out of bad faith. Um, and so, you know, part of what I, the way I think about it is, I do think about it as a sort of process of thinking out loud. I, I think what I like most about Twitter is what I learn from other people um, mm. and and the types of conversations and connections I've been able to make with people who um, 
who I otherwise would have not existed in any sort of real proximity to, um, at, at least for like a much longer, not certainly not as a graduate student, right? I, I think that it has allowed me the opportunity to like enter a type of conversation that um, previous would have, previously would have been off limits to me because mm-hmm. of the sort of hierarchies of academia and things like that. Um, yeah, you know, it is, I, I try to just be thoughtful about what I'm saying and I try to ask myself, is this contributing meaningfully to a conversation um, or is this just tweeting just for the sake of tweeting? And, you know, sometimes you tweet just to, you know, get a hot takeoff. And, um, uh, but I think, you know, I try to, I think sometimes I forget like how big the platform is. Like sometimes I, I I'll treat it as a group text and I'm like, man, this is like gone out to now 200,000 people. I can't, <laughs> this is, and, uh, and you know, screenshots live forever. So you can't like, even if you delete it, but I, I think you, it's interesting, right? Cause one of the, the things about Twitter is that I am, you know, I'm 29 now, but I am, uh, immensely grateful that I did not have Twitter when I was a teenager, even when I was in my like early, I I didn't start using Twitter actively until I was like 24, I think. Um, But my politics weren't, my one's politics are never fully evolved. Um, My politics most certainly were not evolved when I was 17, when I was 21, when I was 22. Um, And there are varying degrees of generosity that people on Twitter extend to, uh, opinions that are that can be seen as um harmful and legitimately right so so part of what i'm always thinking about is what is the what is the balance between uh sort of calling somebody out for for politics or for views that that do represent like a very literal threat to the Mm -hmm. well-being of other people Mm -hmm. um and also providing room for people to make mistakes and and to hold someone accountable without sort of shaming them. You know, the Twitter ling- lingo is sort of people getting ratioed, right? right? Where, um, uh, and, you know, some people live in this, like, existential fear of, like, the ratio, man. You're just like, <laughs> oh, Lord, don't, don't let the ratio come for me. Definitely um, not any of those yeah. on this podcast. Aaron Bennett, you're listening. <laughs> oh, man. Um, the ratio can be vicious. But, it, but I guess, so that's what I, you know, that's what I think about. I think Twitter, at its best, is this remarkable medium that allows for you to learn and, grow and process and get the sort of uh, get the sort of thoughts from journalists and from scholars and from people who who typically would put out books or write op-eds but now you're getting the sort of thinking in between those things and that's mm-hmm. the kind of what I like the most about it is that you get the thoughts you know I'm here I, you almost are like watching it's wild because you will watch New York Times journalists in, in a Twitter argument with Washington Post journalists you know in in ways that we could have never right. seen before right. you know um and and I think that's pretty, when it is done in a generative way, I think that that's pretty neat. Yeah, and I think it adds a lot to those sorts of big picture, really, like, societal dialogues right. um, on the subjects that we were talking about before. For sure. Yeah, it's almost, it's like, in five years, it'll almost be a time capsule of, like, the entire yeah. social conversation around any topic. Yeah. yeah. I honestly can't imagine where the, like, what it's going to look like in five years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to even imagine that Twitter wasn't around. I mean, it was around, but in a much different format, in like mm-hmm. 2010. And mm-hmm. It wasn't around in 2007 or whatnot. Right. Um, you know, 10 years from now, I don't even know what the conversation will look like. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. 
this week's Politicians as Real People comes right from the hilltop, but also not from the hilltop. Uh, so Georgetown senior Will Haskell is actually running to represent the 26th district uh, in the Connecticut State Senate. Uh, and it's really exciting for Georgetown students to see someone so young running for office immediately. Um, if you haven't seen it, check out his announcement video. Um, it's really good. I don't know who did it, um, but it's very, very well done. It's a great political advertisement, um, and you should absolutely watch it and go support him. Yeah, definitely following the mission of geopolitics, which is young people really jumping right in, getting involved in uh, politics. Quick shout out to um, friend of Flying the Wall, Jack Lynch, who is helping run Will's campaign. Going back a little bit, we know uh, you taught in actually prisons across the country. We want to ask you a little bit about how that has kind of led into the work that you're working on today. Um, so I did some work in juvenile detention centers when I was teaching uh, here in D.C. and in, in sort of the DMV area. Um, and it wasn't until I got to Massachusetts for my first year of graduate school. So I, I went to grad school and started grad school in 2014. Uh, the same week Mike Brown was killed. Um, and so it's impossible for me to like decouple uh, the sort of early days of Ferguson from what was shaping the way that I think I would approach my work as a junior scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a very specific decision that like Harvard is the kind of place where I'm sure like Georgetown, that like, if you uh, if you're not careful, your feet can begin to sort of levitate off the ground, you know, because mm-hmm. you go to these lectures and you sit around, you're reading Foucault and you're like, and Dewey, and you're like, uh, and you're just, you know, thinking about a lot of things and being deeply pushed intellectually. Uh, but if you are not careful, it can remain theoretical. It can remain abstract. It can remain divorced from the real uh, lived circumstances of the people who, whose lives you're thinking about. And so for me... I know that in order for me to be successful intellectually, I, I need to be constantly putting myself in a position where I am engaging with the the people whose whose lives I'm most concerned with, right? And so from, I started teaching in a prison uh, because I needed to be able to, like, get out of Cambridge to remind myself that, like, Cambridge was not reflective of the entirety of the world, um, which obviously we all know consciously. But when you are, again, similar to Georgetown, I imagine when you are in a sort of bubble, like mm-hmm. a sort of like intellectual bubble, you can forget that not everybody in the world is operating or thinking about things in the way that folks do in this sort of like five mile radius. Yeah. Um, and so I started teaching at a prison, a state prison in Massachusetts, uh, creative writing. And, and it was the single most important thing that I did and have done in graduate school. I think it really reinforced um, the that but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, it very easily could have been me in prison um, and somebody else at Harvard and or the other way around as compared to the other way around. And and that it is, I think it, it makes me think a lot about the idea of like dessert and, and not dessert like ice cream, but like des- like like moral dessert, you know, as kind of Rawls talks about like what are we, what we believe we're deserving of or not deserving of. And, and I think a lot of people operate under this sort of false pretense that um, they believe that they are sort of inherently deserving of the opportunities and things that they have. And if you believe that, then you, you know, conversely believe that, um, and necessarily believe that the people who don't have what you have or don't have the opportunities you have are, um, 
are inherently deserving, are inherently undeserving of those things. Um, and and it just couldn't be further from the truth, right? Like the, there is a specific type of social and political and historical trajectory that puts people on a pathway to prison, um, that puts other people on a much different and oftentimes more upwardly mobile um, pathway. And so, so the, I, I was thinking a lot about that. And then also you're just like, it becomes very real that this is a cage. You know what I mean? Like that this is a cage that we put human beings in and tell them, many of them, that they are going to stay in this cage for the rest of their lives. And I think that going in there every week um, really made me feel that in a profound way that I had not felt before, that I think you can only feel if you go physically into the space and then leave the space and recognize that like every facet of someone's social and physical agency has been stripped away from them. Um, and that I was working with a group of men who had been sentenced to life in prison, but had been sentenced to life in prison as children. And the U.S. is the only country in the world that sentences children to the life without the possibility of parole. Um, and and that runs so counter to like any notion of justice that I believe in, right? That you have a 16-year-old who may have done committed a violent crime, may have killed someone, right? Um, but should that 16-year-old be told that they are going to spend the entirety of their lives in a cage for something that they did when they were 16, when all of the research, all of the neuroscience shows that your brains aren't fully developed until your mid-20s, that you don't have as much impulse control, and, and that you have to put it in the sort of larger social context in which so many of these young people are, are coming up that are communities that are hyper-segregated and saturated with violence and drug abuse through no fault of their own. Um, and I think when you put the big picture together, it just there's no way to justify putting someone in prison for the rest of their lives. I tend to think of life sentences as um, the same, you know, how we look back and think about the guillotine in the, um, you know, during the French Revolution. We're like, how could the French chop people's heads off? That's crazy. Like, that's so barbaric. Like, I think that we will, I think many people are already beginning to think of the death penalty in that way, which I think is long overdue. Um, and I, I actually do think that the death penalty will be abolished in, in our lifetimes. But I think life in prison we have deluded ourselves into thinking that that is somehow okay, right? Even people who are, are death penalty abolitionists are like, oh, well, just put them in prison for the rest of their lives. Don't kill them. But, like, that is killing somebody. You know what I mean? It's just a very slow death, but it is killing someone. Um, and, and I really think that we're going to look back at it the same way we look back at the guillotine and just say, how could we ever justify putting someone in a cage for the rest of their lives? Um, yeah, I think it's it's a... So barbaric and an inhumane phenomenon. Well, trying to tie everything together here, hopefully the sort of discussions we'll be able to have as a social generation moving forward, whether it's on Twitter or, <clears throat> excuse me, um, outside will start to generate those, um, those solutions where we can kind of put people before kind of the ways things have been done in the past. Yeah. Um, so we're about to wrap up with one more segment, um, mm -hmm. our lightning round, which is something that um, is a fan favorite here at Flying right. Wall. Um, so we have a couple of very short questions, um, okay. more or less fun ones. We just want to get like kind of the first thing that pops in your head. Okay. Um, okay. So lightning round question number one: What's a podcast you'd recommend to our listeners um, outside of this one? Of course, Pod Save the People, which I'm on every week with uh, Brittany Packnett, Randy Kesson, and Samson Youngway. Um, subscribe, listen. We've yeah, That's both listened to a couple yeah. of episodes. Absolutely love it. Appreciate um, it. Big fans of all the work that these guys are doing. Yeah. Uh, second question for you. As an <laughs> Arsenal fan, does Arsene Wenger survive to next season? Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> uh, he will survive. Arsene Wenger is going to be there as long as Arsene Wenger wants to, which is the tragedy of it all. Um, 
at any other club, he would have been fired eight years ago. Um, he is perpetually living off of, what was it, our 2003 season where we went undefeated? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm a Thierry Henry guy, and so mm-hmm. like I, those were the days. But that was 15 years ago. <laughs> I mean, was, uh, you know, Wenger's got to go, but Wenger will only go when Wenger wants to go. So I'm sad to say. Until um, then, we'll languish in sixth place. <laughs> <laughs> Related question. Does USMNT qualify for the 2022 World Cup? Hmm. Uh, God, I hadn't even considered what it would be like if they had. I think I'm still reeling from the fact that they didn't. That we that we Where lost to Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm. One nothing. In two, two one. Yeah. Two I one. Think, two right. one. Yeah. But like it was like had that one goal. It was. Yeah. It was just I remember watching and just being like it felt like they didn't care. Mm-hmm. It was, I was watching. I was like, you guys don't even. This is a win. If you win, you go to the World Cup. If you lose, you're. And it was just also the universe was just trying to teach us right. something that it like was, what was tell. it you Panama won mm-hmm. and Honduras won and Honduras won yeah. yeah. and it was uh, yeah so I I hope so um, really for the sake of Pulisic man he deserves so much better <laughs> I'm just like I'm, if we don't he's got to become a German citizen and <laughs> leave us behind <laughs> uh, and last question for you and I know this is a tough one but the favorite lesson you've ever taught in school whether that was a book or mm. a poem or. Um, really anything favorite lesson um i would say i really love teaching uh ralph ellison's miserable man um i was just talking about this with somebody yesterday but uh, i think the idea of invisibility is is a uh, is one that's really fascinating and i think one that a lot of my students thought about in very different ways that i hadn't necessarily anticipated and i think it always uh evokes something from from students in like different parts of the novel um, bring things up for, for folks in ways that, uh, as a teacher, you know, don't, don't always expect, which I think makes it, um, the most exciting. Fantastic. Well, Clint, we touched on a lot of subjects today from teaching yeah. to Twitter, to our prison systems, to soccer, um, but a fantastic conversation with one of our listeners. Um, I know I know a lot. So thank you so much for taking your time to come talk with us here and flying them all. We really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Everybody listening, go check out all of Clint's work in any sort of medium you could possibly imagine. <laughs> I think my biggest takeaway from the episode is I just wanted to take a class with Clint Smith. He like needs to be in a classroom. I understand why he was such a great teacher because that man just has so much deep reflective thoughts um, and obviously there's so much introspection on some of really the biggest issues facing American society and American politics today. Um, We're really lucky to have him on the pod. I very much enjoyed that interview. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as, as Christian and I did. You get the sense when you talk to him that he's like going to solve the world's problems. Right. And like it's not even really going to be that difficult for him either. Like it's just, <laughs> he's going to solve the world's problems. Everything's going to be great. And he's going to like go back to like having dinner, you know? Playing soccer. Exactly. <laughs> Watching Arsenal lose. Uh, he's probably not happy about their recent game against Man City. There you go. Um, so thanks so much, Clint, for coming on. If you're listening, um, we really appreciated having you. If you want to follow more of Clint, um, unfortunately he was just here, so you missed him there, but check out his Twitter, um, like he talked about. Uh, he also promotes a bunch of his pieces on there, um, that show up at the New Yorker and other places, um, his poetry as well, and you can check out his website if you want to hear more from Clint, which we obviously encourage. Yep, uh, so stick around, we have an episode coming out next week as well, uh, and the week after, and the week after that because we put out these episodes every week. So check back in on Sunday. Yep. Uh, Other than that, follow us on social, let us know your thoughts, and have a fantastic free break.
Did you ever want to be a professional soccer player like Clint? Um, those dreams were crushed when I got cut from uh, the JV squad sophomore year of high school. You got cut from JV in sophomore year? Yeah, the only reason I didn't get cut freshman year because they took everyone in the freshman team. But I uh, oh. was not as lucky my second year. Did you ever, like, like, did that just, like, there was no going back after that? There was no professional soccer career after that? Yeah, no. You know, I never had great hopes for myself. I, I recognized when I rode the bench most of freshman year that it wasn't going to be a great outlook for the next year. But, uh, you know, proud of myself for going for it. Me too. I'm proud of you too. Thanks, bud.